This is In Jewish History, a podcast of Indiana Jewish History. My name is Michael Brown, and I'm your host. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the In Jewish History podcast. Uh, Today, we revisit uh, Bonds of Steel, uh, the scrap metal business in Indiana. And today, I'm joined by Carl Zemring, who is a professor at the Pratt Institute and an expert uh, and a professor of sustainable uh, studies, sustainability studies, and uh, with a strong interest in uh, scrap metal and the Jewish community's involvement in it. So uh, welcome, uh, Professor Carl Zimring. Thank you very much, Michael. Thank you for speaking with me about this wonderful story. Yeah, wow. Um, So, uh, Carl, how did you become interested in scrap metal? I became interested in scrap metal uh, through my family. Uh, Scrap metal is the reason why uh, the Zimrings are in the United States. My uh, great-grandfather lived in Vienna, Austria, and in 1904 was trying to leave. And uh, he was uh, not particularly wealthy. What he did was he contacted someone who lived in the United States who was uh, who had uh, emigrated from Vienna, and uh, this person, who my family called a cousin, uh, sent him the fare to come over to the United States. Uh, and so my grandfather was a Jewish immigrant who did not go to Brooklyn, did not go to Los Angeles, but the first place he spent time in in the United States was Waterloo, Iowa, as a scrap peddler collecting broken farm uh, equipment and giving it to this cousin's uh, scrap metal yard. Uh, and so that started an entry point where my grandfather, his son, um, did an interview with me when I was uh, 22 years old and talked about his experiences growing up in small town Iowa as a Jew. Uh, and uh, what I discovered from that is we, he could not separate his father's scrap metal work from the experience of living in Iowa. Uh, So when it came time for me to uh, do a dissertation in history, I started thinking, how representative was my family's story? And as it turns out, scrap metal is a very large part of the American Jewish experience. And figuring out why that was the case led me down the rabbit hole of discovering more about how the scrap industry came to be and how modern recycling is built on this very immigrant-dominated business that's more than a century old. Um, So could you tell us a little bit about your research methods? Yes. uh, It's kind of uh, strange to do a history of what was called the waste trades because a lot of this industry was not seen as particularly reputable. Today we think of um, recycling as an environmental ethic, and it's a good thing to recycle Back a hundred years ago, people often thought of the uh, scrap dealers as dirty, possibly unethical. So there's a lot of what you'd find in the historical record might be court cases uh, where state or local courts are bringing complaints in against scrap dealers for, say, polluting a local neighborhood. Um, 
but you'd also not necessarily find a lot of archival material in one place about the scrap industry. Fortunately, um, residue of what the scrap industry has been doing is found throughout uh, archival sources. So business records, for example, from the steel industry uh, would involve lots of correspondence with scrap companies. Um, and in uh, Delaware, the, uh, uh, the Hagley Museum and Library has the American Iron and Steel Institute's archives, which includes several feats worth of documents about how the uh, steel industry dealt with scrap dealers. In addition, the industry itself uh, created trade associations uh, in the early 20th century to help uh, manage the affairs and uh, advocate for the needs of scrap dealers. These uh, trade associations, which have eventually uh, uh, merged into the Institute of Scrap Recycling Industries, which still works in Washington, D.C. today, um, kept records and developed periodicals such as the Waste Trade Journal and Scrap Age, uh, the forerunner of the magazine that's still working today called Scrap. And those records also exist uh, for historians to look at. In addition to that, uh, a lot of state and local historical societies have done interviews and in the late 20th century did a lot of interviews with, at the time, 80-year-old veterans of the scrap industry. And those oral histories were very valuable to me as I was doing my research. And I conducted a handful of those as well personally uh, back around 1998, 1999 which I'm grateful to have done because now the people who I spoke with are no longer here. So to do a history of the scrap industry requires taking a variety of oral histories, um, written sources from uh, the industry, written sources complaining about the industry, and for me, also thinking about how representative the Jewish experience in the scrap industry was census data. Um, and the one thing I'll say about that is uh, the census is an interesting uh, source to use for American Jewish history because the census of population does not ask about religion. But for uh, some of the censuses, such as the 1910 and the 1920 census, one thing the enumerators would do is ask, what is your native tongue and what's the native tongue of your parents? And if a respondent um, said Yiddish, Jewish, or Hebrew, that would give some indication that a person is, in fact, Jewish. It doesn't ca catch all the Jews in the United States, of course, at a given time, but uh, it gives some ability for the census to go, okay, these are a number of Jewish people. And then by correlating that native tongue question with occupation, um, I was able to quantify what had been lore in the industry that indeed uh, people who spoke Yiddish or whose parents spoke Yiddish participated in the scrap metal trade in numbers vastly beyond their representation in the general population. So scrap truly has been in America a Jewish industry. Why do you think... So the scrap metal industry was so appealing to Jews then? 
There are a couple of reasons why scrap metal was appealing to Jews during the era of mass migration. Um, and one involves timing. Uh, Jews are coming from Eastern and Southern Europe in mass numbers during the Industrial Revolution. And a couple of major changes are happening in the United States that makes scrap particularly attractive. Um, one is Jews who are coming to the United States like to have, if possible, start their own business. Um, and in fact, a lot of different trades such as jewelry, produce, um, tailoring are ones where an immigrant comes in, can be his own boss, and that's very important if you're worried about discrimination from a factory foreman. Um, if, say, you wanted to leave work in the winter on a Friday uh, at dusk because it is now Shabbat, um, a foreman might not be very understanding of that. Whereas if you're your you're own boss, you can uh, close the shop at four o'clock rather than stay working till six. So working for yourself is very appealing. Uh, a lot of Jewish immigrants had been doing that uh, in, say, uh, fresh fruit peddling. But by the end of the 19th century, a lot of the produce peddlers are finding themselves uh, not able to compete with the emerging uh, modern sto grocery store. Uh, and so a lot of opportunities are going away for Jews. Whereas the scrap business is starting to grow. Um, there had been a lot of trading of uh, materials that had been discarded uh, in America, even in the colonial period. Um, and I actually, my book, Cash for Your Trash, the very first line of it is Paul Revere recycled. He had a metal uh, yard because he, uh, the crown had made it impossible to use brand new metal in the American colonies. All the iron ore had to be shipped over to England. But what you could do then is melt down existing metal uh, and turn it into new metal pro uh, products. So the horseshoes that Paul Revere used to um, uh, warn the people of Lexington that the British are coming, those were recycled metal horseshoes uh, that he recycled himself. Um, and in the 19th century, um, paper mills used old rags uh, as the recycled material to turn into new paper. And there'd been some Jewish uh, participation throughout the 19th century in these waste trades. But in the late 19th and early 20th century, some technological changes make it possible to have thousands of people in this industry. One is with the Industrial Revolution, so much of uh, the nation is suddenly made of iron and steel, from warships changing from being wooden ships to iron ships. The railroads are a significant uh, source of steel, and actually Andrew Carnegie, uh, who becomes one of the wealthiest men in the world through, uh, through his uh, Carnegie Steel Corporation, um, starts off as someone who works for a railroad doing inventory, realizing, oh, I can make lots of money selling steel to the railroads, he starts his own steel business. And um, as more and more things from ships to railroads to buildings 
uh, to eventually automobiles are made out of iron and steel, eventually more iron and steel gets discarded as ships get scrapped, automobiles get damaged, buildings eventually get knocked down. Um, and so there's opportunity to take old metal out of these uh, buildings and vehicles and implements and factories. And a very important uh, change that occurs is that the way the steel industry processed metals changes over time. I won't go into it in great detail, but a very important development around the turn of the 20th century, the advent of the open hearth process of making steel uh, burns old metal at a much higher uh, temperature. It takes out impurities such as rust and dirt so that the raw materials going into a steel mill could be as much as 100% scrap metal. And that leads to tremendous demand for recycled metal because steel is recycled uh, at very high rates in part because of economics. If you own a steel mill and you want to use virgin ore, that's very expensive. You have to rip iron ore out of a mountain, say, in northern Minnesota, transport it on a train to your steel mill in, say, Pittsburgh, uh, and then uh, combine it with coal and um, alloying agents. That's very, very expensive. If, say, you're in Pittsburgh and someone has knocked down a building, um, you can take the uh, iron and steel from that building uh, and combine it with the coal. It's much cheaper for you. So the steel mills wanted scrap, uh, and particularly the new modern steel mills, such as the one in Gary, Indiana, that U.S. Steel built in the first decade of the 20th century. Uh, in fact, uh, Gary, Indiana's uh, demand for news for scrap metal led to I would say, um, in addition with some other changes in the steel industry, um, the opportunity for thousands and thousands of scrap dealers to enter the business. Um, so the demand is there for scrap. And then the other question is, well, why isn't uh, just anyone in the United States entering the scrap business? Well, native-born white Americans did not want to do this work because it was very dangerous. You have to collect old metal. Um, you might get tetanus. Uh, processing this material, cutting it down to saleable sizes, could be very dangerous as well. Uh, so for reasons that this was dirty work that people might not have wanted to do if they had other options... And also because immigrant Jews wanted to start their own businesses, you could start your own business as long as you had a sack on your back and were willing to investigate in a dump or a building site or go to an auction and find old metal and, send, and get it to a business such as U.S. Steel. So the opportunity structure uh, was very, very um, uh, significant. For several decades, roughly until World War I, when the scrap business becomes a over a billion dollar industry, and in no small part because of military demand due to the war. Um, and so thousands and thousands of uh, Jewish immigrants become scrap dealers. 
many of them are in the biggest cities such as New York, Chicago, Detroit. Uh, but because of the need to collect scrap metal from farms as well, you would find Jews coming to very small towns as well, my great-grandfather being one example of this. Uh, and, and so the scrap industry helps shape the creation of these very small Jewish communities all across the country. And where would you say uh, primarily most of the Jewish immigrants immigrants were arriving from who were working in the scrap industry? Anecdotally, I've heard many Lithuanian Jews, many Litvaks were working in this industry. Is that, is that true? Have you seen exactly a breakdown of, of where the immigrants were coming from? I haven't done a quantitative breakdown of by nation where they're coming from, other than to say that changes over time are important here. And I should mention that um, at in the 1850s and 60s, there were Jews in the much smaller scrap trade, and these Jews were coming from Germany. Um, as you get to the 1900, 1910, 1920 census, you see a lot of people from what's enumerated as Russia, many of whom are actually coming from Lithuania as well. The Ukraine, Austria, um, Poland, all of them are coming over and many are participating in the scrap industry. A lot of what's happening is an acts really uh, the realities of timing. If you're coming over in 1910, of which point there are a lot of people coming from Lithuania, there are a lot of people coming from Russia, there's an opportunity to work in scrap. Um, now, seeing how much... Uh, uh, let me, let me uh, stop it. I, again, I've not done a quantitative uh, look at how many people are coming from each nation other than to say Eastern Europeans dominate uh, the trade by 1920. And of course, these are the people who are the most recent Jewish uh, immigrants to the United States at the time when the opportunities are growing. I hope that answered your question. <laughs> sure. Um, does your research cover... Um any Indiana Jewish scrap businesses specifically? Um, in my book, I don't have any specific Indiana workers. I've got, uh, like, I.L. Schlesinger worked in Columbus at the turn of the 20th century, mostly working in Ohio, did some work in Indiana. The Padnos family of, of uh, Southwest Michigan, of course, focused up there. Um, for me, Indiana is interesting because, uh, again, the Gary Steelworks is so central to the Jewish experience, not just in Indiana, but Michigan, Ohio, Illinois, even as far as Iowa, that the demand from U.S. Steel uh, for this material made it possible for people to work all across the Midwest. Uh, but I don't have any individuals in Indiana who I was able to identify in my work. Do you, does your, does any of your research touch upon inland steel in East Chicago at all? Um, only to the extent that inland steel, um, much like Wisconsin steel, uh, was part of this nexus 
in the Chicago Gary area for demand. I did not actually do research in Inland Steel. Um, and you know, just looking at a, a larger perspective, would you say that the Midwest was the largest or the biggest region for Jewish scrap dealers? Um, and- oh, sorry. Uh, continue your question. Yes. Uh, I, I, well, you were answering, and if so, why? <laughs> um, actually, the Midwest is not the largest area for Jewish scrap dealers in the period of mass migration. The New York-Newark area is the center of the scrap trade. Um, And that's true um, if you look at city directories from the 1880s, from 1900, from 1920. And it's true if you look at how many people are working in the scrap business in the census of population. Uh, This is the largest economic trading uh, center in the country for a variety of things, and scrap metal is no different. However, the Midwest is crucial for the growth of the country and the growth of the Jewish community across the country. And so as the United States is industrializing, the Midwest is a crucial center. Chicago, Cleveland, and also Akron for rubber, Detroit for the automobile industry. Um, As the country is expanding its economy, uh, Midwestern scrap dealers become very, very important to the point that some of the oldest scrap companies that are still in business, such as the David J. Joseph Company of Cincinnati, Uh, come from this period at the turn of the 20th century and continue to be very important in making sure that old metal is returning to industry. Um, I should also say that there's a fair amount of scrap on the West Coast as well, particularly in Oakland, California, and Los Angeles, and that's because of the ports on the West Coast. Um, Wherever there is large industry, whether it's shipping, whether it's automobiles, whether it's railroads, uh, and Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania is very important for that as well, you'll find the scrap industry. And, you know, where do you see right now the industry going? Um, I mean, do you see a lot of different uh, families that have been in the business staying in the business long term? Or do you think that some will get out because of the changes in the industry? Where do you think the industry is going right now in scrap metal? Michael, one of the interesting things about your question is it's a question that's been asked about the scrap industry for more than half a century. Um, And I like to talk about uh, the origins of the scrap business as some of the perspective. If you were a peddler in, say, South Bend, Indiana, Um, In 1912, you had a number of possibilities for your future and the future of your family. One is, uh, and I I don't want to minimize this, you could get maimed or killed on the job and that's it. It's over. And uh, this is very dangerous work. A number of people got injured and killed working in scrap. Or you could be like my great-grandfather and not be very good at the job. Um, and get out of the business after a few years to do something else. And my great-grandfather went into liquor, went into tobacco, and eventually his kids moved to California and 
entered show business and they brought him over from Iowa. Um, so those are a couple of things that could happen in your generation. But then there's the possibility that you were pretty good at the job and you go from having a sack on your back to having enough for a cart. And maybe you could buy or rent some land and you had a junkyard. Uh, maybe that junkyard grows enough that you could become a broker and get the materials from other yards. And you could be fairly successful at the business. Um, in that situation, you might be able to pass the business on to your children if they wanted it. And one of the trends that we see going back as early as the 1930s is that the children of scrap dealers might have been able to get college educations, get trained as doctors and lawyers, and they move out of what is a very dangerous business. Um, or in the case of the Luria family of Rudding, Pennsylvania, the children of the founder become uh, lawyers, they become MBAs, and they come back to work at the firm, which becomes very large and very successful. And so you have a few firms where two, three, four, five generations of the family stay in the business. Um, though there are a lot of changes that happen, including the consolidation of the businesses. Uh, I mentioned the Luria family of Reading, Pennsylvania. They become very important because they start buying up lots and lots of other small family-owned firms. Uh, as, say, if the second or the third generation don't want to do this work, uh, why not sell the business? Or um, it, selling the business uh, during a period of a downturn could be very, very attractive. Scrap is a commodity like any commodity. When the economy goes up, prices for scrap metal will go up. If we're in a recession like the one we had in 2008, 2009, the value of your stock is going to go down. And uh, if there's a prolonged period uh, of depressed prices, you might want to get out of the business. Um, for example, the Great Depression decimated the scrap industry. Literally, like 90% of people who were working in the business get out of the business. Uh, so for those reasons, people might want to sell. Um, I mentioned that this was very much a business that an immigrant who was straight off the boat could come in and there's not much of a opportunity. There's a great opportunity structure to start your own business. That changes over time because as businesses like uh, Luria and da David J. Joseph and Padnos succeed, they grow and grow and grow. And a weird thing about the scrap industry is it's the inverse of most industry. Uh, so for example, the automobile industry in the United States, historically, there's a big three, three large producers. And who are their customers? Millions of Americans. The scrap industry is the inverse because you have all these peddlers and all these brokers and all these dealers. You might have thousands and thousands of businesses, but who ultimately are their customers? U.S. Steel, Carnegie Steel, the large steel producers, and maybe Ford Motor Company and a few other large manufacturers. So those dealers and brokers who have good longstanding relationships with, say, U.S. Steel have a competitive advantage over 
someone who's just tried to open his own yard in Newark or in South Bend or in Chicago. And a large broker could also invest in technology, not just shears and torches, but shredders to separate the ferrous material from the unwanted material in automobiles or ships or even buildings. And if you've invested millions of dollars in this processing equipment, um, you're going to be the largest scrap broker in a region, and it's very hard for a competitor to come in. And so for those reasons, really since the 1930s, there's been a pe- periods of consolidation in the industry. Uh, and lots of small dealers leave and larger dealers come in. And the um, trade associations noticed this trend in the 1960s. How do we keep the small family-owned business in the business? Uh, and uh, for a variety of reasons, there have been a lot of appealing reasons. Uh, uh, there's been a lot of... Um, incentives to sell. And I find in the 1950s, in the 1960s, and in the 1990s, there are these vast consolidations of the industry. And then maybe a holding company that owns large companies uh, will overextend itself and sell off parts. And then we see um, um, a, a holding off of consolidation for a little while. And then there's an economic downturn like 2008, 2009, there's another consolidation again. Um, and this has been going on again for, um, for um, almost uh, a century itself, but I found it's intensified over the last 50 years. Um, and scrap is a global industry. It's not simply your neighborhood in Chicago. It's not even simply in the United States. Uh, a scrap business today is going to have ties to Mexico. It's going to have ties to India. It's going to have ties to China. Um, And uh, following where heavy industry is going, that's where ferrous scrap is going. And so um, a competitive business uh, such as Sims Metal here in New York um, is going to have to have the ability to deal internationally. And Sims Metal comes out of the mergers of several of these immigrant-owned scrap businesses uh, with roots going as far back as the 1880s. Um, So um, it's always been a very fluid situation, and there have always been uh, families who have gotten out of the business. So in some ways, the current uh, crisis of can we keep family-owned scrap businesses in business is very much a constant in the history of the industry. Uh, I lived in Israel for a number of years, and um, there you would have a person that would either go around in a loudspeaker or even just walking around, and they typically were um, Arab citizens of Israel, Israeli Arabs, who would scream, Altitzakin, Altitzakin, <laughs> which is Yiddish, you know, for, you know, junk, you mm-hmm. know, give us your junk, give us your old stuff in Yiddish. And these cars would go around, and some would even, you know, have, um, in some cases, a horse. Um, and they would have, they would pile up the scrap in the back of the horse drawn carriage that they had carrying around in, in my neighborhood. I lived in, in Jaffa until they banned people riding around mm. on horses there and horse carts, uh, when I was there. But 
I mean, would you say that that image of someone walking around saying Altitzakin or, or give me your scrap was representative of an immigrant uh, coming to the Midwest? Would they go around the different, because I, I've heard stories of my, of my relative uh, Joe Brown. He would go around Grand Rapids saying, give me your scrap, give me your scrap, bring <laughs> out your scrap or bring out your junk, you know, to me. And people would bring their junk to him um until he got a truck an old truck that he would drive around but i mean was that representative did people really do that did they go around yelling give me your junk oh absolutely uh people would go around yelling give me your junk and this also comes from an older tradition in europe of the rag and bone men as well that people would be going door to door asking for materials uh, and one point that I like to make is that this becomes even more commonplace after the Industrial Revolution, because by the late 1880s, uh, you've got people in small towns and large towns who can order stuff from the Sears Roebuck catalog and the Montgomery Ward catalog. And so there's more goods in the American home by the turn of the century. And so there are real opportunities for someone with a horse and buggy to go through small town streets as well as large streets. Um, my dissertation advisor um, grew up in Jersey City uh, in the 1930s and 1940s, and he recalls there being horse-drawn buggies in the 1940s in Jersey City doing this. Um, so that was very much an opportunity, uh, and it's still an opportunity today, although um, so I live in Brooklyn right now, and what happens here is that you get a lot of Chinese immigrants uh, um, collecting old cans from people's recycling and taking them to, to scrapyards. Uh, and so you still, they're not necessarily yelling, can I have your cans? They're going into the bins to do that, but very much going block by block, house by house, and collecting the discards is something that was common. And I would argue it may have changed, the faces may have changed, and the technologies they use may have changed, is still happening today. And, you know, just looking at the reputations of, you know, you can tell by what we call them, you know, are they scrap dealers? Some called themselves junk dealers, you know, um, the words that we describe people who work in these occupations, how has that changed over the years? One of the big issues that um, I did not realize nearly as much when I started doing my research was just how stigmatized this work and the people who did this work was. Um, and one of the ways you can really see this is, I mean, there are stereotypes in popular culture, like Oliver Twist, the Fagin character, is the scheming Jewish junk peddler in London who's corrupting children. And unfortunately, that anti-Semitic caricature is very common in the United States. And one of the reasons I was glad to be able to look at correspondence from, from uh, steel uh, mills is that they would often write uh, letters uh, and internal memos and say, you have to be very careful of this one. 
he's a Jewish immigrant and therefore very low on the scale of ethics and intelligence, they will try to cheat you. Um, there's lots of that type of correspondence in the steel industry. And because of that, one way that you can really look to see the way that words change over time is I mentioned uh, the industry develops trade associations to try to look out for their members. And the, the way the words, uh, the names of the trade associations change over time from, well, we're the National Association of Waste Material Dealers. Um, we have a collection of junk dealers as part of us. Eventually, they become old iron dealers or old metal dealers. By the late 1960s, um, well, actually, by the 1930s, I should say, there's a coordinated campaign to say what we have is not junk, it's scrap. Junk is trash you don't want. Scrap is the building blocks of industrial society and the foundations of American prosperity. A junk dealer might be someone who's filthy and corrupt that you don't want in your neighborhood. A scrap dealer is someone who is helping build the American economy and is conserving vital materials for American prosperity. So by the time World War One comes along, World War II comes along, it's not an accident that what the government is doing are scrap drives and not junk drives. And the scrap industry is attempting to very much cast itself as a patriotic part of this endeavor. And then in the 1960s and 1970s, um, the term recycling starts getting used by the environmental movement because by this point we're exchanged old uh, glass bottles that we use for milk and for beer that we could take back to the store and fill up again. Instead, we have single-use disposable cans and bottles, and those are littering the American countryside. They're littering American cities. They're everywhere. And recycling becomes seen as a way of let's collect these and put them in some place other than a landfill or the side of the road. Well, where do they go? They've got to go to eventually the scrapyards that have been taking this old material and putting it back into industry for decades. And as the term recycling becomes associated with an environmental ethic, the scrap dealers start calling themselves the original recyclers. And so by the 1980s, what had been trade associations for waste materials become the Institute of Scrap Recycling Industries. Um, so the name keeps changing in efforts to show we're not simply filthy and unethical people. We're people who do very important work. And changing the name is very much an attempt to get the American public at large and American industry and governments that regulate the business to see that this is important work that really should be respected in its own right. So yeah, the terminology changing is very much a cultural history of how a marginalized people in a marginalized business is asserting itself as central to the American story. You know, outside of uh, Red Fox and, you know, some of those other cultural references, you know, the first time I ever saw you know, scrap dealers, you know, in a, in a Jewish context in a film 
was the apprenticeship of Dirty Kravitz. Yes, yes. And I mean, that is like the quintessential, I guess, stereotype of a Jewish scrap dealer in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, wouldn't you say? Well, one of the reasons I love both the book and the movie, which takes place in Montreal, is it also shows this intergenerational kind of, I'm kind of ashamed of where I'm coming from. And in the movie, it's uh, Richard Dreyfuss playing Duddy, uh, who's trying to scheme and, and get out, um, make his way in the world, but his very much is rooted in scrap. And so that kind of ambivalence about where he's coming from in the industry is very, very real. And sometimes it would be the parents saying, become a doctor, we've got money, you can do this. But sometimes the kids went, I don't want to do this anymore. I see how you're treated. Uh, And so the apprenticeship of Daddy Kravitz very much gives the flavor of what the next generation sees the parents and the uncles doing. Um, And uh, if people have not watched the movie in particular, I highly recommend the movie. Um, Dreyfus is fantastic in it. Uh, But um, you mentioned Red Fox. Uh, one of the things that I found fascinating is Sanford and Son, which is a black man in Los Angeles and his son are um, dealing junk. Uh, that's an adaptation of a British show called Steptoe and Son that was uh, put on in the 1960s. And in the British case, much like the apprenticeship of Duddy Kravitz, these men are Jewish. That's that's fascinating. Um that you know they entered the kind of the cultural zeitgeist of, of their times in the uh i guess in the late in the late 70s um i mean were there any other cultural references that you came across in books or magazines or, or other movies um well i'll actually give a slightly ahistorical answer to this because as i'm going back in uh the uh into the um archives i'm also reading uh, work by, say, Mark Twain, Henry James, uh, Theodore Dreiser. Theodore Dreiser, one of the great Midwestern uh, authors of the turn of the century. And there's a lot of characters in fiction who are scheming Jews who, say, want to marry a woman just because they believe they've got gold plates in their homes. Uh, and again, characters like the Fagin character from Oliver Twist. And as I was doing my research show 20, 25 years ago, I thought, okay, these are constructions of a time and place that are past. And so I'm in graduate school. It's 1998. I go with some of my my fellow graduate students to see the new Star Wars movie, uh, just to get a break from doing my research. And as we're watching this movie, the young Anakin Skywalker, who grows up to be Darth Vader, is enslaved by this fat guy with a hooked nose and a Yiddish accent who's got a junkyard. I'm watching the screen with my mouth agape while all of my friends are looking at me because they've heard the kinds of things that I've been saying about the terrible ways in which Jewish scrap dealers were portrayed a hundred years ago. This is an unreconstructed version of that stereotype in a major motion picture in 1998. The character's name is Watto. Um, So for the most part, I'd say that these caricatures are very much 
mid to late 19th to early 20th century. But there's this huge exception in 1998 that almost everyone who has had a kid in the last 25 years has probably seen that stereotype on the big screen. Yes, and it's really unfortunate watching that because that was, you know, in 1998. I mean, it wasn't really that long ago. Um, I was just, I was absolutely in disbelief as I was watching that. And so for my book, Cash for Your Trash, I did have to mention this 1998 movie because it was at that point only seven years old as I was writing the book. And uh, uh, it, it just beggars belief that that suddenly appeared on screen and Again, happily, the most of the examples I saw very common in 1910, not so common by 1970. Um, I mean, The Apprenticeship of Daddy Kravitz is around 1970, but that's a little, that's a considerably more tamped down than Watto in The Phantom Menace. It's, I mean, it's, it, I mean, it begs the question, you know, where, where does that come from? Yeah, um, uh, really, there's right. some other questionable racial stereotypes in that movie, too. Jar Jar Binks is more like a Stephen Fetchett, very much derogatory African-American character as well. So there's a lot of questions we can ask about what George Lucas was thinking with that movie. Uh, but, I, I, yeah, I, I can't say other than... Uh, it's there, it exists, and it's something that we really have to think about in terms of how is this a marginalized person and um, what does that say about American culture? Well, yeah, that, that's it really didn't age well from the late 90s until now. I mean, no. of all the Star Wars movies, it probably aged the worst out of all of them. Uh, and we're not just talking about the CGI. Um, <laughs> uh yeah. So, wow. Um, and, and, you know, I, what are some things that you, you think people should really understand if they're amateur researchers or they're, they're academics and they're trying to, you know, research this field, what are some things that they really should know about it? Um, doing Jewish history in general is one of the, one of the things about the scrap industry is you can't really separate the scrap industry from Jewish history in general. Um, and I would say a few things. One is very much rely on existing historical societies, uh, not just the holdings they have, but the people who work there, uh, especially if they have archivists, because, um, again, figuring out what types of sources are available. Experts have been working in this field for decades and can help you find what might not be obvious uh, places to go. For example, talking with archivists in Pittsburgh led me to go to Delaware. To, they said, you know, going to the American Iron and Steel Institute does not seem like it would be useful. But in fact, it is because all of these small Jewish scrap businesses, they may not have left records that were preserved in their own business when they went bankrupt, but all their correspondence and possibly receipts might have been saved by the steel industry. So looking to see who might be adjacent to the people that you're talking to, who might they have had interactions with, there might be, uh, say, your great-grandfather is part of somebody else's story, and you can find records about him. That's one thing I'd say. The next thing I'd say is 
read Susan Cotts Watkins, uh, who's a, an American historian, has done a lot of census work, to see how you can look at the manuscript census, the uh, actual individual records that get unsealed after seven decades, to see how you can uncover the story of our Jewish ancestors with it. Because as I mentioned, uh, well, the census will not ask, are you Jewish? Are you Catholic? Are you Hindu? What the census will do at particular times is ask what, say, your native tongue and your parents' native tongue was. And that can help find both quantitative data about how many Jews might be in the scrap industry, but it might also help find how many people or which people, which individuals lived in particular towns and for, again, small town Jewry, um, you might find some really rich evidence in the census, even if no Jews live in that town today. And um, again, a, bo a book that I would uh, recommend for this uh, is also Lee Shai Weisbach's book about Jews in small town America that he wrote in 2005. Uh, he can give a lot, his footnotes will give a lot of examples of the various uh, historical societies, the use of the census, and the use of, again, adjacent sources that can be very, very valuable in uh, putting the past back together. Um, so I'd say start, read his book, look at the footnotes in my book, Cash for Your Trash. Read Susan Cotts Watkins' work, her articles as well as her books, but also talk to the archivists at your local Jewish Historical Society if you've got one there, because they can give you tips about what might not be intuitive, but could be a very rich trove of historical artifacts. Well, thank you uh, so much for joining us today, Carl. I really appreciate you sharing your research and your findings and, um, and, and just really unpacking this very big part of American Jewish history and Indiana Jewish history. Oh, my pleasure, Michael. And one of the uh, really gratifying aspects of doing this work is when I wrote my book and published it, I started to give talks. And I would have all of these 70-year-old people come up and say, you've talked about my father. I've never heard anyone talk about how important the work he did was. And so to be able to give a little bit of why scrap dealers are so central, not only to the Jewish experience in America, but I would argue to America itself, um, is what I've been happiest about in uh, doing this type of work. So I'm very glad to be able to speak with your listeners today, and I hope that they'll uh, investigate how scrap may have been a part of their family's lives. And I just have what that just leads me to ask one more question. So, and, and perhaps this maybe might be a big one, but you know, the idea of sustainability and looking at how we're trying to improve the environment today really kind of changes how, in retrospect, we, we, we see our immigrant relatives. Wouldn't you agree? Absolutely, 100%. Um, I have always tried to make the case that what scrap dealers are doing is very hard work, it's very dangerous work, and it's ultimately vital work. The reason thousands of people got into this work is there was such demand for this material, but um, 
Andrew Carnegie was not going to go and collect the scrap himself. Somebody had to do that. Uh, and so for this to be an industry at all is because there was such great need for it within the United States and industry. And now that is an, a global issue. So to keep material out of our landfills means that uh, all of the industry across the world in China, in India, as well as in the United States, um, requires still salvaging this material. Um, there are some other things maybe we're mass producing too much as well. And one of the tricky things that the scrap industries had to deal with is all of the plastic we have today, a lot of it can't be recycled or it's not very economically sensible to recycle. Uh, so to be sustainable today, think about what works for the scrap industry? What can they process? What can they sell back to industry? If they can't do it, should we be making so much of it? If they can do it, should that be the basis of our prosperity? What works for scrap in many cases works not only for the uh, economy, but can work for the environment as well. And thinking through this history is very valuable as we think through the various environmental crises of the 21st century. So uh, thank you. Thank you so much, Carl, uh, for coming on here. And we look forward to uh, reading uh, your research in the future. Thank you so much, Michael. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the In Jewish History podcast, a project of the Indiana Jewish Historical Society. Look us up on the web at ijhs.org.